I was curious this morning, how many people uh, wear contacts or glasses? Who, who has a little bit of need for their help with their sight? That looks like almost consensus here. Uh, my wife fortunately has good vision and we're hoping that maybe Gwen might have that as well. Um, but I think that most of our experiences would be that our sight kind of gradually went away. That it's not as common for someone to suddenly lose their vision. Um, it's a gradual thing, and so then you don't quite notice it's going, and you're looking for indicators, and you can't see, um, you, you don't even know what you can't see. And so when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, um, mo most of my friends were getting glasses. And so when I told my parents, you know, I, th I think I can't quite read the board from where I'm sitting very well. And they're like, oh, you know what? He just wants to do what his friends are doing. He just wants to go get glasses because that's what everybody else is doing. So uh, they needed an indicator to see that I couldn't see. But I still was struggling. Of, you know, is it just normal to not be able to see the board from there? You know, is my vision actually bad? And so it wasn't until baseball season came back around. And I always was... Um, you know, I always did pretty well in baseball and was one of the kind of better hitters. And so suddenly fall comes around, I'm swinging and just nothing. Not making contact, not hitting at all the same way that I used to. And that was the no moment that they realized, oh, something's weird here. He's usually really good at this. What's going on? It must be something that's wrong with his eyes. So I went to the eye doctor and, you know, I'm not sure how quickly it got to this point, but I'm one of those people that you show the, the letters on the screen, but it could just be only the big E, but I still see a white screen. You know, there's nothing there at all. I think that you're playing tricks with me. You don't actually have letters on the screen. Um, but, all right, I did have eye problems. I needed glasses. And so we waited at the mall. We waited, they were making the glasses for us. And when I get my glasses and I put them on, the world looks completely different. And you didn't know that until you put those glasses on for the first time. And suddenly the world looks so very different. And so we're leaving there and we're driving along the streets and I'm counting and I'm like, I'm pointing out every single street sign. Look, that's what that street's called there. All the while my family's feeling really, you know, sad or frustrated with themselves. Like, he really did need glasses and I feel so bad about that. Um, but the world looked so different. And that's true with our spiritual vision as well that sometimes we've had the mountaintop experiences, we've had this great spiritual moment where God felt so present, where we thought we had such clarity of our lives, but sometimes over time that gradually disappears. And one of the things that we don't talk about as much as faith communities is a little secret that everybody doubts. You might feel completely alone and isolated in that, but that's usually just because we don't talk about it. But even the greatest spiritual leaders of all time had moments and long periods of time in their life where they doubted, where they, where they didn't see the world as clearly as they once saw it. Uh, Mother Teresa, uh, Teresa famously admitted that she spent over 50 years feeling like maybe God had abandoned her. Can you imagine giving your life fully and completely to caring for those in need and for 50 years feeling dry and feeling like, I can't see God in this. And so I want to ask the question, how do we end up in a place where we can't see God at work in our lives? And what, what might Jesus say to us in that kind of a moment? 
Now, there's plenty of people that we could look at for this. There's plenty of people in the Bible who had their kind of great moments of faith, but also had their moments of doubt. Uh, But today, I wanted to bring up the life of John the Baptist and a moment in which he faced extreme difficulty. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Matthew 11 says, When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. I want to make sure we understand who John is before we get into this dilemma that he's facing. He's called John the Baptist, and no, he's not that kind of Baptist. He's not a Baptist uh, denominational person. Uh, He's someone who started a religious movement. He, He started a new awakening of going out from the cities, going out into the wilderness, and repenting of all sorts of things, things that, that had gone wrong in your life, things that had, you had failed at, and people were repenting and being called to a new way of life. And so he would baptize them, he'd dunk them in the water, and it would symbolize this kind of cleansing, and it would symbolize the new life that they were moving to. But he wasn't just baptizing people. In the New Testament, it talks about him seeing his mission as preparing the way of the Lord. He was preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And Messiah is just a fancy ancient Jewish way of talking about the king. It's the anointed one. And Israel had been autonomous for a little while, but for about 500 years, they've been living under the oppression and rule of other kings and other nations and empires. So they are hoping and longing for a moment in which God might bring a new king to give them freedom, to give them peace, to give them justice, so they can just live in right relationship with God and with their neighbor. So that's what they're longing for, and that's what John has given his whole life to. He's waiting for this coming Messiah. And he, he sees that in the work of Jesus. And so earlier in Matthew, just to give us some context, John sees Jesus and says, you know, I can't even carry his shoes. I shouldn't even carry his shoes. And Jesus wants to get baptized by John, and John's like, wait, I should be be baptized by you. What's going on here? And so John was fully bought into Jesus and his ministry. And, you know, I love, as an aside, the Gospel of Luke uh, pushes this to an extreme, and it tells a story of John and Jesus both being in the womb of their mothers, And their mothers get together, and while in the womb, John is even leaping for joy at being around Jesus. That's the kind of relationship that the Gospels often portray for John and Jesus. And yet, we find John in a very different state of mind here in chapter 11. He's in prison, and he's in prison because he was saying some things about his ruler that the ruler didn't care for. Particularly, he was condemning his marriage. He had married his, his brother's wife. And so he condemned that, and that got him put into prison. So he's cut off from his religious movement. He's cut off uh, from the fruits of his ministry. And it's in that situation that he hears reports about what Jesus is up to. 
And he, you know, he had been excited and he'd been, he'd been pointing to Jesus and now he finds himself questioning. He asks Jesus, are you the one who is to come or are we to await another? Now I want to point out a temptation in the text. I realize that with this being this Sunday and, and you're you know, kind of getting to meet me, that you might want to th- think about this question as, are you the pastor who is to come or should we wait for another? But, but that question in the text is so much bigger than me or any of us in this room. I mean, John is questioning whether his ministry was for nothing. He's questioning whether God's at work in the world in the way that he thought that God was. He's questioning whether Jesus is actually the Messiah. And that's as big of a doubt as you can imagine. So if you've been afraid of your doubts, here's one that just laid out on the table. And maybe you've been vulnerable enough to share that with a friend, but can you imagine that that friend is actually Jesus? And so he just comes straight to Jesus, he sends a word, and he says, are you the Messiah? I need to know. It doesn't look like you're the king I've been waiting for. Did I put my hopes in you wrongly? Do I need to start over? Do I need to wait for another? I find it fascinating in this text that John doesn't doubt because he doesn't know what's happening. He hears what Jesus is up to. He hears Jesus has been teaching and he's been healing and all of these things, but he's still doubting. And I think he's doubting in part because he's not fully experiencing it himself. He's hearing it indirectly. He's hearing about it through other channels. But he's also doubting because he was just expecting a very different kind of king. John was looking for that king that was gonna come like the apocalyptic judge and condemn and judge and sentence everyone to fire and death, Uh, especially that Herod ruler who put John in prison. But that's not what he hears what Jesus is up to. He's like, what are you waiting for? Aren't you that king? Or do I need to wait for somebody else? And so John is sitting in a prison cell questioning whether God is at work in the life of Jesus. He can't see it. He's living in a prison of gloom. He's found himself looking for that judgment and wrath and not for hope of new life. He's found himself doubting God's activity through Jesus and now he's questioning whether his ministry was even worth it. I want to suggest that sometimes we also get stuck in our own prisons of gloom. We didn't notice our vision kind of fading, and that hope and that life that we had at one moment suddenly looks a little bit more pessimistic. And maybe you were forced into that like John. John got forced into prison. And maybe that you've had literal prison experiences with you or your family. Maybe that that forced isolation is health deteriorating and being shut in and not feeling like you can get to things in the same way. Maybe that's having family or friends who are aging and you can't see as often or loved ones passing on from this world and that isolation just keeps turning your focus inward and inward and you get more and more nearsighted and you can't see what God's doing out there. Maybe you feel isolated because because family is moving away, you've got an empty nest, whether that's for kids or grandkids, people are moving off. Maybe as a young person, you can go off to school and feel isolated, that suddenly you're not around any of those people that meant stuff to you your whole life. Maybe you're on the flip side of that. You didn't go off to school, and all of your friends are going off to school, and they've left you what it feels like left you behind. 
Maybe the prison of gloom for you is a cynicism. And it's, it's okay to be realistic and, and that there's obstacles and problems and challenges, but maybe you've just started to expect failure. People are going to fail you. They're going to let you down. Your organizations are going to let you down. Maybe even expect failure of yourself. Maybe you've let someone else frame the world for you. And that godly vision that you had has been replaced by whatever the cable news network is or the newspaper or the uh, TV show or whatever it is. And, and they tell what's going on in the world and they frame it to you in such a fearful way and they're trying to prey on our, our fears and our angers. And, and you just don't see the world with those same fresh eyes anymore. Maybe you feel isolated in that prison of gloom because you just haven't had the space to ask the questions. And you just need to be able to write to Jesus and give a prayer and say, are you who you say you are? Maybe that wasn't okay. You feel alone from that. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can find ourselves in our vision, kind of spiritual vision getting dim. And we turn inward and isolated and we're not experiencing God in, in the same way that we used to or that we hope to. But today, and I hope every day here, it's safe to ask the question, Jesus, are you Lord? And if so, what does your kingdom look like? Because Jesus doesn't rebuke John for that question. I want to point out that, that Matthew's actually quite bold in allowing this question to be in, in his gospel, right? That if you're wanting people to believe Jesus as the Messiah, maybe you shouldn't have this kind of doubting story. But there is something Matthew does in the text to make sure that the reader knows where Matthew stands on the question. In the, in the way that John hears about what's going on, it says that John hears what the Messiah was doing. So it specifically calls Jesus the Messiah in that verse. And so he's asking, are you the Messiah? And the, and the narrator has already told you that yes, he is. And I want to point out that that's actually quite significant. Matthew doesn't often use the word Messiah. So he used it in the first couple chapters of Matthew when he's laying out who Jesus is and he wants you to have an understanding of who you're dealing with. And then all the way from Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew 11, no use of the word Messiah. And here it's the question of, are you the Messiah? And he's calling him in the text the Messiah. And we don't see the word Messiah again until Matthew 16 with Peter's great confession of faith. When Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And he opens that floor for that question. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So it's significant that the text is trying to emphasize that, yes, the question matters, but the answer is very certain from the writer's perspective. And so for Matthew, and hopefully for all of us, there's, there's an affirmation of that messiahship. But it's important to look at how Jesus answers this question. He doesn't answer it with a giant theology textbook. He doesn't answer it with some sort of apologetics argument and just kind of trying to say, oh, well, you know that because this is true and this is true, then you can say that I'm the Messiah. He doesn't have this little simplistic tract that he goes through with them. Instead, he has something incredibly more universal to all people's experience. He says, go experience the kingdom. How do you know who I am? Go see what it's like. Look, see. He tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. And, and it requires a humility to go into a situation and to learn from the other. 
not to always expect that we, ha- we have everything to teach the other, but to listen and to see what God is doing in others' lives. And there's an energy and an excitement that comes from those moments, from getting out of our own isolated bubble and experiencing how God is transforming other people. You see lives changed, and you see exciting things happening, and then suddenly you notice that you start to get excited, and there's an energy level change that happens. And so I really want to stress that it's important that we see service in our ministries and our community as not just like add-ons of like, oh, it's nice when you have time, this is a good thing to go do. But this is like central to what the gospel is. And this is how Jesus says you can know who he is. Go see lives transformed, and that's what the gospel is. So what does Jesus say his kingdom is like? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news brought to them. There's a problem if that list sounds boring. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. These things matter to God, the physical needs and the spiritual needs. God has a concern and a care for our whole lives and our whole being and is wanting to transform our world. Jesus' kingdom is about serving those in need and transforming lives. I wanted to note that that language at the end of that, that list, preaching good news to the poor. And just I want to remind you what that first century mindset would have been. That when someone heard good news, or what that word is, is gospel, when they heard that, that was a political term. And what it was, was a king would conquer an enemy and would come and celebrate it and say, good news, peace now reigns. And that peace reigns through violence and conquering and conquest. But Jesus' gospel and good news to the poor is completely different. Jesus brings about good news through healing and new life and it's restorative justice instead of just redemptive, violent justice. And that is truly good news. And it's not stretching what the meaning of good is to call Jesus' gospel good news. Now, in our church bubbles, sometimes we can feel like that that gospel sounds easy and fluffy. It makes you feel good. It's just nice and happy. But I want to point out that Jesus acknowledges that that's not always the case, and not often the case. He says in verse 6, And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now that no offense word, that's the Greek word for scandal. So blessed is is anyone who isn't scandalized by me. And that's because Jesus' ministry was scandalous. That's what so much of the gospel stories are, is these religious elite looking at him and saying, You can't eat with those people. You can't spend your time with that person. Jesus was offensive to the way that they saw the way that God worked in the world. And so when Jesus says he brought good news to the poor, the flip side of that is that's not always sounding like good news to the powerful. When those in power see that the poor are being uplifted, sometimes that looks like a threat. 
Sometimes equality to those with, with uh, sometimes equality to those who have privilege looks more like discrimination. Like, I used to have all these perks and benefits and suddenly now we're all on an equal playing field and that looks like I lost something. And so it doesn't always look like good news when Jesus lifts up those from the underside of society. That means that we need to be about those parts of society that are overlooked, that are looked down upon. That means we are called to live life together and to serve those who society might call misfits or abominations or illegals or trash or whatever derogatory and ungodly term people place on others in this world. There's a good news to people there, but there's a side of that that is hard to hear for some other people. And John is wrestling with a vision of the world in which maybe that Messiah doesn't look like the kind of Messiah he was expecting. So I want to ask us this morning, what vision of the world will we choose? A vision of gloom? Are we looking for seeing people as the culminations of their failures, as caricatures of themselves, as whatever stereotypes we place on people, or whatever fear that we have of some other person? Are we looking through a lens of gloom? Are we looking through a lens of good news, of gospel? Are we seeing people as God's children, as people who God is transforming and bringing about new life in? How do you see the world? What I think is hopeful for us is, is that 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 question isn't something that requires us to do anything extrinsic, like you don't have to go somewhere to have this change, you don't have to, to um, receive anything from others. It's a spiritual habit that we choose to cultivate in our lives. Are we looking for judgment and condemnation, or are we looking for hope and new life? Barbara Brown Taylor is a famous Episcopalian priest and professor uh, she was named by a Baylor University study as one of the 12 most influential pastors of the modern era. And she tells a story about when she was seven years old and um, something that changed the way that she saw the world and saw her calling in life. So when she was seven, her pastor told her one Sunday, why don't you come up front and sit up front um, this particular Sunday? And so she came and she sat up front and he started to tell a story about her and what he noticed in her life. And she kept this, uh, this little bird bath. And she was watching these little tadpoles and she kept watching them and she was really excited about them turning into frogs. And, and she's just captivated by God's creation. And the pastor connected that to God's care for the world and God's love of every aspect and even the littlest of things. And Barbara described this moment as if someone had turned on all of the lights not only to hear herself spoken about in church, but to hear that her life was part of God's life, and that something as ordinary as a tadpole could connect those two things. Barbara describes leaving church that day as a changed girl, and here's what she said. I could no longer see myself or the least detail of my life in the same way again. When the service was over that day, I walked out of it into a God-enchanted world. Where I, could wait, where I could not wait to find further clues to heaven on earth. Every leaf, every ant, every shiny rock called out to me 
begging to be watched, to be listened to, to be handled and examined. She says, I became a detective of divinity, collecting evidence of God's genius and admiring the tracks left for me to follow. Friends, we are all called to be these detectives of divinity, looking for where God is at work in the world and transforming lives. And we can see that in our daily lives, glimmers of the gospel at work in the world. Barbara later found out that 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 gospel is sometimes scandalous. That pastor that meant so much to her uh, eventually met the effects of the civil rights movement. He announced to the church that everyone was welcome there, and the church eventually announced that he wasn't welcome there. And so as he was being ran out of town, they hung a stuffed effigy of the pastor in the doorway, swaying in the heat as he left. Seeing God in everything means that we see God at work in people that others don't want to see. Sometimes there's a price for that. So it's time for us all to have an eye exam. Am I excited about the good news of God transforming others, even if I'm in the midst of my own personal struggles and challenges? Can I be excited for others, even if I'm in my own prison of gloom? Can I give up some of my preferences or expectations of how God might work in order to just focus on transforming lives? Can I look up for my phone or computer or TV screen and from the moral outrage that we might feel in those moments to actually go do something about it? Go be a part of the change and the transformation. Can I get involved in the world's transformation and invite others to join me? As a community, there's also some ways that we can foster this vision collectively. Can we focus on serving Jackson transforming it with good news and hope more than just caring about our own advancement because it's when we care about the advancement and the transformation of others that growth happens if we're just focused inside and internally we won't see where god is at work in the world can we make spaces for transformation and authentic questions it's okay to be real here The status quo isn't just that we have to have everything perfect and figured out. We have stuff to learn from each other. We can listen to each other, can see what God is doing together. When we see those transformed lives, share it. Tell others about it. You know, we are our own only evangelists. You can only share your own experience. No one else is sharing it for you. Share your story. Share it in person. Share it online. Share it however you you can. Don't just focus inwardly. Share out that good news to the world around us. So I I hope we can get excited about what God is doing. We can participate. We can lead. We can share our gifts and our skills. And let's have hope. I wanted to share a little bit of why I'm hopeful and why I have uh, a lens of good news uh, looking at this community. I want to pause to mention how uh, incredibly well your search community represented you and was wonderful to my family and I um, and our experiences over the last few months, uh, caring for things that that are kind of logistical things on the back end of things to playing with our daughter and loving on her. Um, They were signs of 
the kind of warmth and love that this community has. And I hope we continue to foster and cultivate that love where it's not just felt inside these walls, but felt throughout Jackson. And I see this community as hungry and excited for what God is about to do here. And there's a reason to be excited because God is bigger than us and has better plans and better visions for us. And there's something to be hopeful for. And I feel that excitement brimming up. And, and I just want to call us and, and suggest that we just join in God's transformative work because God is transforming the world with or without us. And let's just join in that and celebrate it and be excited about what God is doing here. And so, in closing, I want to remind us that let's look beyond the walls of gloom that imprison us. Let's see the world through the lens of good news and the gospel. Let's experience that life. Let's go see it. Let's go hear it. Let's go celebrate it. And let us not be ashamed or scandalized by what we find God at work doing. Instead, let's receive that blessing that Jesus gave to those who didn't take offense. So friends, God is a God of hope. And I am hopeful. And I hope you are too. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Our last hymn is number 677, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Again, out of the hymnal you may sing or directly out of the bulletin, but please sing. Nadine has an announcement to make. Good morning. I'd just like to let everybody know that we are going to have a 
well, we're going to consider it a board meeting, but we would like everybody to come if they would choose to. We're obviously we'll have it out in the fellowship hall so that everybody can meet um, Pastor Dallas. He can tell us a little bit about himself, and then we can tell him a little bit about ourselves, and we can get to know him, and he can get to know us. Everybody is welcome. We want everybody to come if they have any questions. Also, um, I'm going to make the formal announcement as moderator according to our bylaws so everybody knows that we are going to have the vote next Sunday to decide whether or not Pastor, Foot, excuse me, Pastor Dallas is going to be our minister. So everybody, if you are a church member, you're allowed to vote. So everybody be here next Sunday. Thank you. Friends, may God give us new sight, new vision, new hearing, new listening, today and every day. Amen. <laughs>